We're going to look at Habakkuk today, Habakkuk chapter 2, verses uh, 1 through 5. And I prepped, I prepped the boys to find it because this is not the easiest passage to find. It's one of the minor prophets. It's only three, three chapters long. Uh, but Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, this is what it says. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come, it will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up, it is not upright within him, but, my, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a, a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol, like death he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. This is the word of the Lord. Let me uh, pray for us. Uh, God, we thank you for your word today, and we thank you, God, that you gather us here to, to be able to worship you. And uh, you know, as, we, as we think about this uh, theme of waiting, uh, I do pray, God, that you would help us become uh, more patient, uh, not just as individuals, but as a congregation. Help us to be attuned to uh, what the, the Spirit is doing. And uh, you know, if there are seasons where uh, we simply have to wait on you to move, uh, give us the strength and the endurance and the persistence to be able to, uh, to do that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, so as I mentioned, um, I think many of you were not here last week because it was uh, the New Year's Day, but last week uh, I started a theme. We're going to return to the, our series in the book of Acts at some point, but uh, at least to start the year, I wanted to reflect on this theme of waiting. And uh, what I said last week is waiting is, if you think about it, it's an integral part of the Christian faith because if the Christian faith is built on promise, then promise assumes a period of time that you have to wait in order for that promise to be fulfilled. But as we think about waiting, I also realize there is a difference between waiting for someone to give you something you want, like the promise of a gift or the promise maybe of a promotion, uh, versus the kind of waiting where you have to wait for a very difficult and challenging season to be over, right? Both uh, entail waiting, but uh, it's not quite the same kind of waiting. Habakkuk is a very short book, and it's one of those books that I imagine even the average Christian may not really look at or read or even maybe be familiar with. But there is a lot in this short book that I think is especially applicable for uh, the churches in the West today. We don't know very much about the person Habakkuk because um, the text doesn't tell us a lot, but uh, scholars think it's like pretty clear that Habakkuk is writing during a period where the kingdom of Judah is in decline. So if you know like Israel history, right, the, the, the kingdom is united, and then uh, because of uh, the sin of Solomon and under his like uh, sons and succeeding generations, what eventually happens is this kingdom gets divided into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. You have Israel and Judah, and then uh, you have the book of Kings kind of telling the story of like all the stuff that's happening, right, in both of these, in this divided kingdom. So Habakkuk is writing during a period where uh, the kingdom of Judah is in decline, and he probably lived during uh, Judah's most prosperous moments under King Josiah. So King Josiah was one of the good kings, and uh, uh, Judah was uh, prosperous under his rule, but after that, things start to go south. And so Habakkuk is living through a period of time where he probably saw the prosperity of Judah, uh, only to see now that in decline 
where Judah's later, later kings would end up being subordinate to uh, the Babylonians. And so it's one thing to live during a time where things are kind of being built up, right? It's another thing to live during a time where everything seems to be going down, in decline. And so related to the theme of waiting, I do think uh, it's a different kind of waiting on the Lord when uh, you're building up something versus when something is being torn down. And Israel had been built into this great kingdom. Uh, and it was united under uh, King David. But then, because, again, of Israel's idolatry and because of their sin, kingdom is divided, and now things go on the decline. And Habakkuk is like the ground-level prophet who is writing during this time of decline. When things are good for many, many years, you kind of get used to it, and you think, like, that's the norm. You think it's normal. Uh, I think probably in America, for the most part, if uh, we were born within, like, the last uh, couple decades, we've experienced, like, a lot of good, a lot of comfort. And so when evil and suffering confronts you, you get a little bit surprised by it. Now, I mentioned this before, but there's a pastor that uh, I respect very much in Brooklyn. He started his church by reaching out to folks on the streets, homeless folks and addicts. And uh, we're just kind of having a conversation. And he says, you know, for a lot of folks, peace is the norm. And then they get surprised when suffering and hardship comes and that peace gets interrupted. But folks, for folks in my church, uh, Suffering is a norm, right? Hardship is the norm. Not knowing where uh, you're going to sleep or get your next meal, that's the norm. And when joy comes, they get surprised by it, right? It's a very different mentality. So I'm sure the people in Judah at the time thought these good times were going to last forever. I'm sure they thought prosperity was going to last forever, just like I'm sure uh, the Romans thought the good times were going to last forever, just like I'm sure people in our country think the good times are going to last forever, but what eventually happens to nations is uh, they eventually decline, and living through that period of decline can be a huge shock to the system. But we're not talking here about just political power or the prosperity of nations, but for us, we live during the age of the church, and so in this age, you know, the people of God are no longer confined to just one nation or uh, a single country anymore, but the people of God is the church, and churches go through seasons of being built up and going through seasons of decline. When I read Habakkuk, it did make me think a little bit about our situation in terms of churches in the West, because here in the West, Christianity once flourished greatly spiritually and culturally. Uh, in the West, Christianity has, uh, you know, up until I guess maybe a couple decades ago, maybe one or two decades ago, right, Christianity has had a pretty large and significant influence on the culture. Even a lot of the values that we have now, I would say, has been shaped by a Judeo-Christian worldview. But we are probably living in a time where now Christianity is in decline. And we can tell because secularism seems to be a much more dominant and default way of understanding the world. Uh, all the uh, surveys that, are, um, that come out is showing like church attendance is on the decline. COVID probably accelerated a lot of that, and COVID probably accelerated a lot of the closing of uh, some of the smaller churches. Uh, also, a lot of the sins of the churches have been revealed through some high-profile scandals. And so there's like these signs pointing to decline. And while I'm, of course, not certain this is true, maybe there are pockets where there's a lot of revival and flourishing, at least to me, it does feel like it's true that here in the West, uh, Christianity seems to be on the decline. And that's actually why I'm glad a book like Habakkuk is in the Bible, because it does give us a framework in terms of how do we process the decline of God's people, especially after a period of prosperity and blessing. 
chapter 1, Habakkuk has just addressed God with this complaint, and here's what he's asking. He's like, how long am I going to cry for help, and how long is God not going to hear my cry? He's asking, why do you make me see all this evil? Why do you make me see all this iniquity? And why do you stand by idly and not do anything about it, right? In other words, he sees all this evil and destruction around him, and God seems to be silent. And this is where our passage picks up in chapter 2. So after Habakkuk voices all these complaints, this lament to God, he says in verse 1, he says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me. Now, do you know what he's doing here? He's assuming a posture of waiting, right? He just complained to God, and now he's saying, I'm going to climb this tower, and I'm going to wait for an answer to come from God. But the way he does it is uh, he, he climbs this tower, and I think it's kind of illustrative of trying to gain a better vantage point, uh, a different kind of perspective. You, you see how he stations himself on the tower. Cities would be built on tower, or cities would build these towers in order to kind of get a better view of like what's going on around the city. It would help them to see like what's coming, whether it's like enemies or whether it's uh, somebody else, whether it's even weather, whether a storm is coming. Right? They would climb these towers just to see and get a better perspective on what's ahead and what's coming. So, being in New York City. I'm sure you know what it's like to like be in a tall building and look out of a tall building. It definitely gives you a different perspective of the city than when you're on the ground. I have this very vivid memory of uh, shortly after I got that Bible, uh, when I was in college, the youth group uh, in my church didn't have a, a youth pastor, so uh, I filled in for a little bit. And uh, what I did is I took this group of kids, uh, like high school kids, maybe uh, when I was about like 21 years old, I don't know, would we trust the 21-year-old to do that now? I don't know, but when I was 21, <laughs> I took like, a, a group of 20 uh, youth group kids into the city, which I had no experience of being in, and uh, we partnered with YWAM and did like all this ministry in the city, mainly like prayer stations where we would go out and pray for people. And we went to all the boroughs, right? So we went to places in Brooklyn and got spat on by the Orthodox Jews. We went to Fidei, where uh, all the Wall Street folks ignored us. We went to uh, places like Spanish Harlem, which was much different back then, but we went to Spanish Harlem, uh, where people embraced us and asked us for prayer and <laughs> longed for prayer. It was like some of the best uh, times of prayer in my life. So I remember we were in Spanish Harlem, and uh, people were just talking to, to me about like some serious stuff. Uh, one person was talking to me, and this person had transitioned from uh, a man to a woman and then regretted it and like felt like you know, his life was like ruined and scarred forever and he had no hope and was like asking for prayer. Another person was asking for prayer because he was like, yeah, I'm really mad at this guy and uh, I want to shoot him, right? And I'm a, college, uh, I'm a college student and I have no idea how to respond. So uh, all I did is like, right, thankfully we weren't out there giving advice or counsel. We were just praying for people. So this might have been the only time I prayed in my life, God, I pray that you help Tony not shoot the person that he's mad at, right? <laughs> so I remember after that day of ministry, uh, you know, it's like pretty emotionally exhausting, and you're thinking, oh man, the city is like so broken, right? The city is so messed up. And we took the subways all around, and uh, that night was ending by going to the Empire State Building, so we took the subways. I think we walked from like Times Square to the Empire State Building and it was like so chaotic, especially taking like a group of 20 uh, to get to the Empire State Building. And I'm like, oh, this city is like so chaotic. There's like too many people here. 
And uh, we end up going to the top of the Empire State Building, and the point of going up to the top of the Empire State Building was just to pray for the city, right? But here's, wha- here's uh, what happened, which was like very interesting. I remember uh, going from that emotion, like the city is so broken and chaotic, to getting up on the Empire State Building, looking out at the city, and having a very different perspective on New York, and thinking, wow, the, the city is actually really beautiful. And uh, just like praying for uh, New York, I remember looking down at the taxis and they're driving on the street and I was like, wow, these taxis look so peaceful and orderly. Even though at the ground level, you know, they're probably honking and cutting each other off, right? Uh, But you get a different vantage point when you're very high up. And sometimes it helps to get a higher vantage point so that you can see things from a different perspective than you would if you were on the ground. So what does that mean to get a higher vantage point, spiritually speaking? And I think we have an example of that in the Bible. I think Paul does this in places like 2 Corinthians. So uh, we recently went through 2 Corinthians. Uh, I'm sure you don't remember, but just in case you do, there's a section that uh, a lot of people would highlight in their Bibles at the end of chapter 4 because it's a very encouraging section. And this is what Paul says. He says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. So do you know what he's doing here? He's comparing the affliction that he and his fellow um, ministry partners experienced, and now he is comparing it to something higher, to something greater, the eternal weight of glory, and he's allowing that to shape his vantage point, his perspective. And just to be clear, this is the same affliction where in chapter 1 he says he was so utterly burdened beyond his strength that of this affliction, that he was, he despaired of life itself, right? What he's going through was so bad that he just felt like he didn't have the strength to go on. And yet now in chapter 4, he says this affliction is light and momentary. Why? Because what he's doing is he's getting a higher vantage point and he's seeing things from the perspective of the eternal weight of glory. He gets in the tower just like Habakkuk gets um, and he waits to hear from the Lord. So Habakkuk is in this tower. He says, I'm going to wait. And then God answers him, right? God answers Habakkuk. This is starting in verse 2. The first thing God says to Habakkuk, he says, write the vision on tablets. Now, why write the vision on tablets? Because when you write it on a tablet, the expectation is you want this vision to be around for a long time. You want people to read this for a very long time. Why do you want people to read this for a very long time? Because the implication is, this is not going to happen for a very long time. The implication is you're going to have to wait for this to be fulfilled. It's a difference between, you know, sending somebody a text message versus, like, establishing something in a legal document, like a living will. You might text someone and say, hey, I promise, I'll pick up dinner tonight, because the expectation is that promise is going to be fulfilled pretty soon. You don't have to put it in a a binding legal document that's going to last forever. But when you construct something like a will, The intent is it probably won't be executed for a very long time, so you want it to be written in such a way where it withstands the test of time. And that's what God is telling Habakkuk to do here. The Lord, uh, from the outset, tells Habakkuk, write the vision on tablets because what I'm going to say will not come to fruition for a very long time. And then God says, if it seems slow, wait for it, right? Wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. 
So in other words, rather than immediately giving an answer or resolution to the things that Habakkuk is complaining about, God's answer is wait, right? Just wait. That kind of response from God is not something that people like, especially people in our culture. Uh, in an age of like email, in an age of text messages, Instacart, DoorDash, even the names, right? Signal like, ooh, we're going to be quick, right? Uh, all of the services that we use, we are conditioned to expect things to come to us quickly. And imagine you see some terrible things happening around you and you ask God to, come on, God, please do something, right? Uh, I see all this injustice around me. I see all this evil around me. God, do something about it. And his response is, I will, but not now. Wait. If my action seems slow to you, wait. See, that's why patience is so important when it comes to our faith. Think about this. Patience is, I guess, a reflection of humility. Because waiting is a way of saying, look, I am not in control. And so all I can do is wait on God's timing. All I can do is submit to God's time. It takes a great deal of humility to that because we are a people who like to be in control. We like to be active. We like to make things happen. I think especially uh, folks in New York. And more than that, most of us probably think it is better for us to be in control because then we can fix things according to the way we think they should be fixed, which is why uh, when we feel like anxious, probably our response is, uh, where can I grab more control? Where can I feel a greater sense that I am in control? Uh, now, I remember hearing this a long time ago when I was in a counseling class in seminary, and uh, the, the image stuck with me, so uh, I'll share it with you today. But basically, the professor drew these uh, two circles, right? Uh, inner circle, right? Outer circle. And what he would say is, God gives you responsibility uh, in this inner circle. So you do have some sense of control. God wants you to control right, what's in that circle, what he gives you control over. Uh, you can control whether you wake up and eat breakfast. You can control whether you exercise. You can control whether uh, you uh, go to school or go to work or do your homework, right? These are things that are in your control. But then there are things like outside of that circle where you, you can't control it. You can't control how quickly a person is healed, whether it's uh, a physical injury, whether it's a uh, mental illness. When you're, when you're uh, for the parents, when your kids get older, you can't control whether they're going to make the right decisions or right choices in life. We can't even control that now, right? <laughs> right? You can't control whether uh, in this upcoming year there's an economic recession and the company that you're working for, uh, maybe they do some layoffs and you end up getting one of the people, uh, you end up being one of the people that get laid off, right? There's like so many things that are outside of control and what we run into trouble when we uh, don't focus on the things that we can control, but now we try to control, right, all the things in that outer circle uh, that's when we start to get anxious. That's when we start to assert ourselves more. That's when we try to step over relational boundaries. That's when we start to micromanage everything. And rather than having more control, all it really does is make us tired and anxious. And therefore, humility is saying, look, this is all I can control, but this outside circle, it's in God's control, right? Only God control it, can control it. So what can I do? I can pray. I can pray for God to move. But at the end of the day, we wait for God to move. And do what he's going to do in that outer circle. 
There's a place in 1 Peter 5 where it says this, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him. And again, Peter's exhortation is humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, and he directly relates that right at, to waiting. At the proper time, he may exalt you, but he also relates that to being free from all your anxieties because you have cast it upon him. And I wonder, why, I wonder if that's why in verse 5 it makes this connection between an arrogant man and one who is never at rest. And to be clear, God is talking about Babylon here, right? The Babylonians, they were the ones who were characterized as drunkards and as arrogant people. But part of what was supposed to set Israel apart from these other nations is they, they were supposed to submit to a higher king. But Babylon didn't submit to God as the higher king, and the outcome is, right, what Habakkuk is saying or what God is saying to Habakkuk, there is never any fulfillment for them. They will never be at rest. There is never enough for them. They're going to conquer more and more peoples, more and more nations, but it will never be enough. And yet the Babylonians in Habakkuk's time seem to be winning. They're exerting their will. All Habakkuk sees is injustice being done to his people. God says the Babylonians will receive their just due, but just not now. God tells Habakkuk, wait patiently for the, uh, for the appointed time to come. And if it seems like it's too slow, and if it seems like it's taking too long, God says, wait, because it will surely come. It will certainly come at the right time, in God's time. So how long, then, is, are we expected to wait on the Lord? Even in seasons of hardship, even in seasons of decline. And the answer is actually very simple, but it's not one we want to hear. We wait until God responds. That's it. But what if it takes years? We wait. Well, what if it takes the entirety of my whole life? We still wait. <laughs> we wait until the appointed time. And you see, it's the unknown that is hard. It's the unknown that calls us to this deeper trust in God's control and God's timing and God's character which is why what we saw last week in the book of Joshua, God has his people wait because it's in the period of waiting where our faith deepens and where we grow in our trust for God. And this leads us to our final point and a very important verse. Uh, in verse 4, God says this, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by his faith. He's making a comparison between two kinds of people. He's saying there are those who, who trust God and there are those who don't. Now you can tell that this verse, uh, Habakkuk 2.4, is an important verse in the Bible because there are several places in the New Testament that actually quote this verse. Paul quotes it in Romans 1 and Galatians 3. The author of Hebrew quotes it in Hebrews 10, right before the great chapter on faith in Hebrews 11. Why is this uh, verse so crucial for the New Testament author? the New Testament authors, and for us. Well, we've been saying that waiting presupposes a kind of humility. It assumes that we are not in control. It also assumes that we don't know what the best outcome is, nor do we know when this outcome ought to happen. Waiting means we can't depend on our own strength, our own ability, our own power to make things right. But you see, it's not enough just to assume these things are true because all that does in the end is it just deconstructs ourselves but it doesn't provide the kind of foundation we need to persist with strength 
and encouragement and hope. And these are things that we need in order to endure difficult periods of waiting. So not only do we need to deconstruct our own sense of self-reliance, our own sense of pride, we also have to look to something outside of us that can undergird us. And that's why we need faith. Because what faith does is faith looks outward. Faith is a dependence on, and a trust in something that is not ourselves. And the object of our faith in the Bible is none other than Jesus Christ. It's a kind of faith that trusts in Jesus alone for the redemption of the world, the redemption for ourselves, our bodies, our sin, right? All of these things in Jesus, redemption comes. Now, Habakkuk saw this in part when he first received this word from God, but you see the New Testament authors, they see the picture in its entirety. What were the New Testament authors able to see? Well, they're able to see what the Old Testament prophets were waiting for. Uh, if you just peruse how the New Testament writers talk about the coming of Jesus, you realize how frequently they reference time. John the Baptist makes an announcement. He says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Galatians 4.4, Paul says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Also says in Romans 5, 6, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. The New Testament writers, they, they see time in a whole different way. They see the coming of Jesus as the very thing that everybody, the people of God were waiting for. This is the time. This is the right time where now we begin to see the fulfillment of God's promise. Jesus came to address all the things that the prophets were longing for. God's response to Habakkuk is fulfilled with the coming of Jesus. Jesus addresses all evil, all injustice, all suffering, all struggle, all sin. Jesus came to address decline. Jesus came to address defeat. How? By absorbing it all upon himself when he dies on the cross. On the cross, Jesus receives... Uh, the judgment for all evil. On the cross, Jesus suffers the greatest injustice of all. On the cross, Jesus experiences the greatest decline as someone who went from glory to now this shameful death on a cross. And it's only because Jesus himself is the one who absorbs all of these things that now uh, the promises of God can be fulfilled, are fulfilled. It's, only why, it's also why we can be free Freedom is not limited to being free from evil and, just and injustice and suffering, although that's a, a part of freedom. Uh, that's what the prophets were looking for, but Jesus' freedom is much more than even they would anticipate. The New Testament writers write about a faith in, a, in the crucified Christ as something that gives the adoption as sons, meaning like we have this inheritance, we have this status as like a, a son would have in the ancient world, uh, the recipient of the inheritance. It's a kind of freedom that invites us now to come into the family of God, and to find a place where we belong, even in spite of who we are, even in spite of our weakness, even in spite of our sin. It's a kind of freedom that allows us to now come to a holy God, not like with fear and trembling, but now with confidence as a child would come to a parent maybe because that wall of sin and hostility have been torn down for good. In Jesus, we do not simply get the justice that the prophets were crying out for, but we get the very personification of justice and goodness, and truth, and wisdom, and love. If you look at the New Testament, places like Hebrews 10 to 12, 
you do realize a few things about what the writers are saying about waiting. Uh, the first thing you realize is that there is a sense in which we are still waiting as Christian believers, and the Christian life is about waiting. Now we're waiting for Jesus to return again, to resurrect the entire world, to bring upon a new creation uh, where this new creation is now absent of sin and evil and death in its entirety. And you may say, well then, aren't we just in the same boat as these Old Testament prophets? We're still waiting for the fulfillment of prophet. Well, yes and no. The author of Hebrews tells us uh, to look at how they waited, but there's a difference because Hebrews 12, 1 to 2 says this, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, these are the, the witnesses of people who had faith, the people who waited for the promises of God, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And here's where the difference is. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Uh, why are we different from these prophets as we wait? Because we have Jesus. And because we have Jesus, we can look to him. We can look to him as a founder and perfecter of our faith. We can look to him as the one who endured the cross for us. We have someone who, uh, if you think about it, actually waited upon us. Right? Paul talks about the patience of God in 1 Timothy 1. We have someone who waited on us, and now we can look to him so that we can endure and we can wait on him. We have the one who gives us the fuller picture of the plan of redemption. So now we don't see in part, but now we have uh, the full uh, revelation of God in Scripture of God's intention to take us now to this glorious resurrection. And so do you know what all of that boils down to? It boils down to this. Whether in decline, whether in struggle, whether you experience prosperity and you no longer have it, whether we're surrounded by all kinds of evil, we're kind of wondering when is this going to stop. At the end of the day, what we need to do is what Hebrews says. We need to look to Jesus. We need to see Jesus. We need to know Jesus. And we need to wait for Jesus. Because God's ways are higher than our ways. His timing is better than our timing. If you find yourself waiting, if you find yourself struggling with impatience, if you find yourself saying, why isn't God responding? And maybe collectively, uh, why, when is God going to revive uh, this place, this city, spiritually once again? When is God going to uh, spark a great movement of repentance and a great uh, movement of worship? Right? Maybe we're waiting for these things. We s look to Jesus as we wait, we trust in him, and we wait for him uh, to do the work that we cannot do. Let's pray. Uh, God, we want to gain, we want to climb the tower like Habakkuk, and we want to gain a greater vantage point, uh, something even higher than even the Empire State Building. Uh, we want to see things from your perspective. We want to see the things that you have planned. We want to see things from the perspective of the eternal weight of glory that is promised us because we have Jesus. Uh, God, a lot of our frustrations, a lot of our anxieties, even a lot of our fatigue and tiredness come when we try to take hold of the things that only you can take hold of, when we try to move things that only you can move, when we try to control things that only you have control over. 
I pray, God, that you would give us a collective humility. Um, and maybe even before that, I pray that you would uh, deepen our collective faith to trust in you, to trust in your timing, to trust in the times when you're silent, to trust in the times where you speak powerfully, and to live in such a way uh, knowing that your character is good, knowing that you're supremely wise, knowing that you see all things, knowing that your heart is full of love, grace, and mercy. And that when you see injustice, when you see evil, when you see things that are not the way that they are, when you see death and when you see sadness, that you are still there, that you are still with us, and that in your great goodness, wisdom, and power, uh, we trust that you will respond when you respond. Help us to be a people who can wait, wait in prayer, wait patiently, wait in worship, wait on you as you move in your time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.